This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. Be sure to check out and subscribe to the Voluntarist Voices podcast brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntarist Voices is a podcast featuring lectures, interviews, and audio essays by intellectual giants past and present. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at a logical fallacy and a cognitive bias. The logical fallacy we'll be looking at is affirming the consequent, and the cognitive bias we look at are primacy and recency effects. All right, so for the logical fallacy affirming the consequent, the the resource I'm using is fallacyfiles.org, and if we look at the taxonomy, It is a propositional fallacy, which is a formal fallacy, and it has a sibling fallacy called denying the antecedent, which I think we've covered before. Let me, let me double check that. Yeah, that was episode 47. So this is, this is a, a close sibling fallacy. Um, it looks like, okay, let's start, let's start with this example. Never has a book been subjected to such pitiless search for error as the Holy Bible. Both reverent and agnostic critics have plowed and harrowed its passages, but through it all, God's word has stood supreme. This is proof that here we have a revelation from God. For if God reveals himself to man, he will preserve a record of that revelation in order that men who follow may know his way and will. All right, so the argument being made here is that because critics have not discovered any errors in the Bible, then this is proof that the Bible is the Word of God, right? So it doesn't actually follow that just because there's no errors in the Holy Bible that it's the Word of God, right? You obviously would need some corroboration to that. You'd need some, we would need to know for certain what would qualify as the word of god probably by having a you know an objective indisputed example of the word of god we can't just say well we think that if 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 it's our belief that what constitutes the word of god is that something is without error and because the bible is without error that's proof it's the word of god well that's a nice closed little system that doesn't actually prove anything Okay, so here's um, some other examples. If it's raining, then the streets are wet. The streets are wet, therefore it's raining, right? It's kind of the same idea. Uh, you know, there there could be other reasons the streets are wet. There could be other reasons that the Bible doesn't have any errors. It could be that it's gone through centuries and centuries of edit and revision, and, you know, certain kinds of errors have just been removed over time and over publications. And today you have grammatically or 
uh, as far as how it's made and put together, there's no errors, right? I mean, what, what, what are we even talking about when we talk about errors? That wasn't made clear in that past example. Well, this one is a much uh, simpler example. If it's raining and the streets are wet, the streets are wet, therefore it's raining. Well, you're affirming, you know, the, the, the beginning part, but it doesn't, it doesn't follow that's the only reason that the streets would be wet. It could be that you just, you just sprayed them down with a hose. So here's, here's another example. If it's snowing, then the streets will be covered with snow. Okay, that's, that's true. Second fact, sec, that's the if, the first fact. The streets are covered with snow. Oh, therefore it's snowing. Well, again, it may have already snowed and then it stopped snowing and the streets are still covered with snow. So it doesn't follow that if, you know, you can't, you can't go, you can't do that in reverse, just like with the, the raining in the, the wet streets. Yes, if it's snowing, the streets will be covered in snow. That's true. And apparently right now the streets are covered with snow, but that doesn't prove the antecedent. That doesn't affirm it, right? That it must be snowing. Could have snowed last week, and it's just cold enough that the streets are still covered. Okay, they've got um, they've got a bunch of stuff here on this page, but let's go down to an analysis of the uh, the Bible example. They write the phrase "This is proof that" is an argument indicator, indicating that this passage contains an argument. Specifically, "This is proof that" is a conclusion indicator, which means that the proposition it occurs in is a conclusion. Here, in the Bible, we have a revelation from God. Moreover, the use of the word proof also means that the author is claiming that the argument is deductive, that is, that it is the strongest type of reasoning. The word this in the conclusion indicator refers back to the preceding proposition, so it is a premise supporting the conclusion. Both reverent and agnostic critics have plowed and harrowed the Bible's passages, but through it all, God's word has stood supreme. In other words, the author is claiming that the Bible has withstood all criticism. Finally, the word for following the conclusion is a premise indicator, meaning that the proposition it occurs in is a further premise. If God reveals himself to man, he will preserve a record for that revelation in order that men who follow may know his way and will. Putting these together and simplifying their wording produces the following argument. Premise. If God reveals himself in the Bible, he will preserve a record of that revelation. Premise, God has preserved a record of his revelation. Conclusion, God has revealed himself in the Bible. Therefore, the second premise affirms the consequent of the first premise, and the conclusion is the antecedent of the first, which means that the argument commits the fallacy of affirming the consequent. Okay. Um, okay, I think that'll do it. I'll link to this. And like I said, there's some exposition about you know some of these other examples, and it really kind of gets into the nitty gritty. I think I think we've covered it. Right, I really like that uh, streets example. If it's raining, then the streets are wet. The streets are wet, therefore it's raining. Right, that that that's a really that's a really simple example to see this fallacy in play. So just remember that one. Okay, all right, let's go on to the cognitive bias, and for that, our resource is Rolf DeBelli's The Art of Thinking Clearly. This will be Chapter Seventy Three: Primacy and Recency Effects. Here we go. Allow me to introduce you to two men, Alan and Ben. Without thinking about it too long, decide whom you prefer. Alan is smart, hardworking, impulsive, critical, stubborn, and jealous. Ben, however, is jealous, stubborn, critical, impulsive, hardworking, and smart. Who would you prefer to get stuck with in an elevator? Most people choose Alan. 
even though the descriptions are exactly the same. Your brain pays more attention to the first adjectives in the list, causing you to identify two different personalities. Alan is smart and hardworking. Ben is jealous and stubborn. The first traits outshine the rest. This is called the primacy effect. If it were not for the primacy effect, people would refrain from decking out their headquarters with luxuriously appointed entrance halls. Your lawyer would feel happy turning up to meet you in a worn-out sneakers rather than beautifully polished designer Oxfords. The primacy effect triggers practical errors, too. Nobel laureate Daniel Canamar describes how he used to grade examination papers at the beginning of his professorship. He did it as most teachers do, in order. Student 1 followed by student 2, and so on. This meant that students who answered the first questions flawlessly endeared themselves to him, thus affecting how he graded the remaining parts of their exams. So Kahneman switched methods and began to grade the individual questions in batches. All the answers to question 1, then the answers to question 2, and so forth. Thus, he canceled out the primacy effect. Unfortunately, this trick is not always replicable. When recruiting a new employee, for example, you run the risk of hiring the person who makes the best first impression. Ideally, you would set up all the candidates in order and let them answer the same question one after the other. Suppose you sit on the board of a company. A point of discussion is raised, a topic on which you have not yet passed judgment. The first opinion you hear will be crucial to your overall assessment. The same applies to the other participants a fact that you can exploit. If you have an opinion, don't hesitate airing it first. This way, you, you will influence your colleagues more and draw them over to your side. If, however, you are chairing the committee, always ask members' opinions in random order so that no one has an unfair advantage. The primacy effect is not always the culprit. The contrasting recency effect matters as well. The more recent the information, the better we remember it. This occurs because our short-term memory file drawer, as it were, contains very little extra space. When a new piece of information gets filed, an older piece of information is discarded to make room. When does the primacy effect supersede the recency effect or vice versa? If you have to make an immediate decision based on a series of impressions, such as characteristics or exam answers, the primacy effect weighs heavier. But if the series of impressions was formed some time ago, the recency effect dominates. For instance, if you listen to a speech a few weeks ago, you'll remember the final point or punchline more clearly than your first impressions. Hmm. In conclusion, first and last impressions dominate, meaning the content sandwiched between has only a weak influence. Try to avoid evaluations based on first impressions. They will deceive you, guaranteed in one way or another. Try to assess all aspects impartially. It's not easy, but there are ways around it. For example, in interviews, I jot down a score every five minutes and calculate the average afterward. This way, I make sure that the middle counts just as much as hello and goodbye. Okay. Um, I think those are pretty interesting. Um, I'm just looking back over some of these examples. Um, I thought that professor, the Nobel laureate who was grading examination papers, I thought that was interesting. You would read the the first couple of answers, and if they were impressive, that would that would, in a sense, uh, cloud, you know, begin to cloud your judgment on the rest of the exam for that particular student. So instead of do, you know, and then and then with the next student, the first two are less than impressive, or the first one is less than impressive, and now you've, I don't know, it it sort of sets your expectations, but it also um, there's there's I think there's another cognitive bias at work here when you are impressed by it and now you're like it said endeared to the student 
if the next couple answers are less impressive or subpar, because you like the student, you're going to, you know, you're going to to judge them a little more charitably. And that that particular bias might have a name, and we may have covered it. I don't I don't remember. <laughs> um, and then you know, and then vice versa. You you read the first or second, you know, the first one or two answers, and they're less than impressive. They're seemingly subpar, and now you've got a really low bar, and you may not catch you know any brilliance that might follow that you know with with later questions because. Maybe, you know, you don't like this guy. Maybe he said something or he said it in a way that really irked you. So he switched it up apparently. And, he, and instead of just going through one exam paper, let's say it's 10 questions, he goes through question one through 20 students, grading them all. And then he goes to question two again, boom, boom. So theoretically, it would take the same amount of time, um, but you're not going to finish any particular exam paper for any particular student until the very end. So that's kind of interesting. And then the equivalent of that when hiring people, you know, because if, you, if you're if you interviewing people, but you're not really making your decision for a couple of weeks, then um, the recency effect is going to kick in and the people you interviewed last are going to be more memorable than the people you interviewed at first, unless you happen to record the interview or took detailed notes with maybe a point system like you mentioned that you can refer to. So... Well, I think that's going to do it. Um, short review. We looked at affirming the consequent. Again, just remember this example. It's a, it's a simple one. If it's raining, then the streets are wet. The streets are wet. Therefore, it's raining. Obviously, it does not follow. There could be some other cause of the wet street. So when people are making arguments like, well, the Bible, the Bible's been, you know, studied for years and, you know, there's no error that have been found. And of course, people might even disagree on that what constitutes error, right? And there might be some moving the goalposts happening uh, with that on, on possibly either side. So this, 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 this isn't proof of anything. Um, okay. And then we looked at uh, primacy effect and recency effect. All right. That'll do it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast at everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you.